So if you've been around the church at all, uh, there's probably been a time where you have heard us describe this book, the Bible, as a blueprint of God's. Or maybe you've heard it described as a, a roadmap or a, a kind of a spiritual GPS system, something that can kind of provide guidance and direction uh, to your steps, to your, to your life. In fact, the Bible itself uh, at times refers to itself as that. Psalm 119 says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so in addition to just revealing the good news of the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him, uh, that's one of the intents uh, that God has had in mind in giving us his word, in giving us the Bible to, to be that lamp to our feet and light to our path, to, to be that kind of step-by-step guide. But, you know, many times I, I talk with, with, with you about the challenge that it is to use the Bible in that way. And we've talked about this in, in many different settings uh, in this environment, how difficult the Bible can be to use at times. Because for starters, you know, it's written thousands of years ago, and so it's written in times and history and context that we don't automatically understand and have to consider in order to understand what the original author intended to say to the original audience back then that applies to, to us today. None of it was written in English. It was written in different languages, and so there's uh, kind of translation and interpretive work to do. And then, of course, we've discussed from time to time that much of the Bible's been written in very different literary styles than just kind of an instruction book that, you know, there's poetry and narrative and prophetic kind of imagery and metaphor that all kind of makes it confusing and difficult at times for people to leverage the full kind of scope and power of the Bible to be that guide for our lives. And many times I'll talk with you and you'll lament to me that, wow, you know, I, I, I just wish the Bible was easier to understand. I wish it was clearer and, you know, simpler and just kind of walked me step by step through the kind of issues and choices and challenges of my day. Well, if that's you and you've ever felt like that and you've ever wished that the Bible could be simpler and clearer and more direct and applicable to your life, well, then today is for you. Because in this section of the biography of Jesus written by uh, one of his friends and followers named Matthew uh, that we've been studying in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus provides us with a step-by-step blueprint to address a very critical issue in all of our lives that affects all of us pretty much all the time. For once, if you've you know, never or rarely experienced this, Jesus, through the Bible, provides us with kind of a, a blueprint, a roadmap, a GPS system to navigate something that matters very much to all of us. So if you brought your Bible along, or if you brought uh, a personal device, portable device that has a Bible app, uh, I would encourage you to turn to chapter 18 uh, of the book of Matthew. And, and we're going to begin to consider and kind of leverage this GPS system, this roadmap, this blueprint that Jesus has given us, beginning in chapter 15, or beginning in verse 15, rather, where Jesus is addressing the issue of relational conflict with other believers. Beginning in, first, uh, begin, beginning in verse 15, it says this. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. A couple clarifications here. He says, first of all, if your brother or sister 
sins. He's referring to somehow a brother or sister, which isn't necessarily intended to refer to your biological brother or sister, although I'm sure my siblings have used this passage from time to time in relation to me. When Jesus talks about a brother or sister, he's referring to a spiritual perspective, not just a nuclear family perspective. And so he's referring to other people who would profess faith in him. You know, men and women who are aspiring to follow Jesus in the same way that you are, that's the bandwidth of which this teaching applies. So let's be clear, it doesn't apply to people who don't profess faith in Jesus Christ. It, it won't track necessarily with them. The, the, the scope of the application of this roadmap or this blueprint that Jesus provides is in the context of our spiritual family. It applies to believers, to brothers and sisters uh, in the family of God. And he says there then, if your brother or sister sins and tells us what to do. Now, when he refers to the sins of spiritual brothers or sisters, that doesn't mean that you and I are all of a sudden supposed to behave as the sin police and just kind of sit on our perch and monitor the behavior of everyone around us and point out everything that they do wrong. Oh, foul. Oh, crime. Oh, that's a sin. Oh, call that. He's more accurately referring to sin that is kind of committed towards you. And just so we're clear, so that you don't need a second roadmap or a second kind of rule book or blueprint to discern what's sin and what's not sin and whatever. A more accurate translation of, of this idea, I think, worded it this way. They said, if a fellow believer hurts you, if a fellow believer hurts you, that's really what we're talking about today, what Jesus intends to say here. If, if someone within your spiritual family does something that causes pain or offense or hurt to you. That's what Jesus is teaching us how to handle and how to, how to respond, okay? So in that case, he says, if your brother or sister sins, he says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Jesus' instruction, the step he intends for people to take when you're in that situation is to go and show them that they've hurt you and how they've hurt you, to go and address that directly. And first of all, to, to do it privately, you know, not to lament about it, not to gossip about it, not to complain to others instead of going to them to talk about them instead of to them. No, biblical conflict resolution, when another believer has caused you pain, has, has hurt you in some way, is intended to be done as quickly and as quietly as possible by going to them in private and showing them the fault. I don't know how many of you have done that before. Sometimes that works magically. And sometimes it takes issues and cleans them up very uh, kind of nicely and neatly. But sometimes the truth is, sometimes it doesn't. In fact, sometimes a tiny little issue when confronted can turn into an even bigger blow up. And so in this section of text, Jesus uh, kind of predicts that and understands human nature probably better, better than we do. And so the step-by-step -step guide doesn't just end with one step. It continues with subsequent steps. The, the, the playbook or the, the GPS system that he gives us gives us multiple steps today. And so look at what it says in the next verse, in verse 16. He says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He says, sometimes people will not Listen, and by listen, he's not referring to just hearing. He doesn't just mean when you go to someone, you know, do they have their ears plugged and are they ignoring you? He assumes that they hear you. When he refers to listening, it's a more active response. It's a response of understanding and appreciation. It's a response of empathy and consideration. A response of ownership and responsibility. A response that requests 
forgiveness that apologizes and that seeks to change their behavior. It's an active response that repents, that turns from that activity to try to live differently. That's the kind of listening that Jesus is referring to. And he says, in some cases, uh, that's not the response that you're going to get by going and showing someone their hurt and offense in private. And so what he says to do is to go back to them, but this time to bring someone else along, to bring one or two witnesses he describes them as and by witnesses Jesus isn't referring to people who actually saw the offense take place that's not what they're witnessing by by Jesus intent many times that would be impossible to find when Jesus refers to witnesses he's referring to people witnessing the second round of conversation that you're going to have to kind of sit as sort of impartial mediator, mediators or brokers and, and kind of discerners having close and trusted respected relationship with with both of you. And I think what Jesus is getting to here is that there are a bunch of different outcomes that could actually take place in addition to necessarily the one that you may have hoped for. And a, and a discerning voice, kind of an impartial witness, can help figure that out. You know, because sometimes you can be hurt and go back to the, the person that hurt you and discover that it was actually not them that hurt you, it was someone else. And it isn't really an appropriate conversation to, to have. It's not going to end the way that you that you want, or maybe you discover that it's, it's an accident. They really didn't do anything to hurt you, even though they, by accident, you know, caused you hurt. There's nothing really to, to own, or, or, you know, maybe they, they own it, but, you know, for some reason you're so hurt that you can't actually receive their apology, so you're still feeling unresolved, but a, an objective witness can authenticate the fact that they are recognizing that they hurt you, that they, that they are owning this, and that that's actually on you to, to receive their ownership, to receive their their, their forgiveness and, and apology. Or, um, or maybe, you know, like the first step suggests, maybe they actually rejected what you had to say. Maybe they disagreed with you and maybe they, you know, had a different version of reality and maybe they, they just didn't bother to apologize and, and you know, aren't going to give you what you need. There, there are a whole bunch of different situations and, and outcomes that could, that could happen. This witness helps provide some objectivity as to which one is most appropriate. Okay, that's, I think, what the second stage is intended to do. But I think we can all appreciate that there are still times where someone causes hurt to you. You go to them. You, you know, it's unsuccessful. You, you bring someone the next time, and it's still unsuccessful because they're not about to own or acknowledge the hurt that they've, that they've caused. There are, there are some more difficult situations than that. And Jesus kind of assumes that. So he gives us a third step then in verse 17. He says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, when Jesus says, tell it to the church, let's be clear again that his goal in conflict resolution is to handle it as quickly and quietly as possible and to talk to people and not about them. So when he says, tell it to the church, he doesn't mean blab it across the whole church community. He doesn't mean post it on the church's Facebook wall. When he says tell it to the church, it doesn't mean tweet it about the church. You understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? When he says tell it to the church, it, it can be a little bit confusing at first because this is the second of only two times recorded by Matthew in the entire biography of Jesus that Jesus uses the word church. It's kind of a newer word in, in that day. And so the, the understanding of how church works and how it's kind of organized or whatever is a little nebulous and a little bit confusing. 
But what it seems to suggest, what, what Jesus seems to mean when he's talking about telling it to the church is that within this spiritual family dynamic where brothers and sisters in Christ exist, there's going to be some sort of structure where some people are playing a role or taking more of kind of a parental leadership responsibility. And however that works in, you know, your local kind of practical context, I think Jesus is encouraging people to leverage that authority structure and those people in positions of responsibility at this stage. And if you think about it, this is fundamentally different from the second stage where you're just bringing kind of an impartial witness who happens to be a friend or acquaintance of the, of the two of you because of the addition of responsibility and authority. You know, the kind of person who plays a, a parental role is different than bringing a sibling, isn't it? You know, you could try to resolve a conflict with a sibling, but it's different when you bring in mom and dad. Because now you've got an authority figure, someone, you know, with greater, perhaps, experience, greater discernment, you know, a, a greater degree of wisdom on the situation, who could probably see and understand more of the nuance of it, and, and in some sense, render more of a decision. They can kind of weigh in and... and, and, and you know, if it's actually the individual who's hurt you, who's not actively listening, they're not responding, they can weigh in and provide some, some authoritative weight and, and kind of direct them, challenge them, hold them accountable to responding appropriately to you, to owning the hurt that they've caused, to apologizing, to, to changing their ways. That's the spirit of what telling it to the church means. It's intended to kind of move them in, in that direction. And around here, just to get very practical, in case you're wondering how you would do that in our context, um, you, you would access the most kind of reasonable or appropriate leader in your circle of relationship. You know, if you've got a context in your ministry environment, leverage a leader from the church uh, in that ministry environment, whether it's a volunteer or paid staff. Uh, if it's a conflict in your life group, you can leverage your life group leader or the leader of our life group leaders, the, the coach in that sense, or you could bring in the location pastor of uh, your particular location. Or if something is serious enough and heavy and kind of weighty enough that it demands you know, a, a greater degree of, of leadership, or if you find yourself in a conflict that seems to be unresolving um, with an actual existing leader, you may actually have to leverage the highest level of authority and responsibility in our local context, and that is our board of elders. You know, our board of elders and our senior staff of leadership and, you know, many of our paid staff and even volunteer leaders, we find ourselves in these conversations from time to time. And particularly with our board of elders as that kind of last line of defense. In a lot of ways, that's one of the core functions that they provide. They, they provide that conflict kind of mediation and, you know, encouraging of restoration by providing the wisdom and discernment and accountability that their position in our family allows. And so there are times where things get so serious that you've got to kind of leverage the church and its, and its leadership structure in that sense. But of course, there are times, and Jesus appreciates this, there are times where even that doesn't work. And so in verse 17, he continues by saying, if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If after going to them privately and showing them their fault, Nothing happens. And after bringing an impartial, objective witness, nothing happens. And after leveraging the leadership structure of your faith community, nothing happens. Jesus says at that point, you know, it's time to take a, a slightly different tack. And he says to treat them as a pagan, literally as a person who professes no belief in 
in God, who, who professes to not follow Jesus. Which is kind of an interesting approach, given that the whole conversation started in the context of spiritual family. It presumes that this conflict resolution sequence only applies to people within the spiritual family. People who are professing faith in God and in Jesus Christ. But at this point, things have gotten so extreme that you're supposed to see them or relate to them or treat them as if they had no belief because, Jesus understands, if they are so unrepentant and so inconsiderate and so unwilling to respond to the impartiality of objective people and so unsubmissive to the authority structure within the spiritual family, well, they're just repeatedly, continuously demonstrating as if faith doesn't track with them at all. And unfortunately, you have no hope but to treat them as if they didn't believe in Jesus Christ whatsoever, to, to treat them as a pagan. But in doing that, that doesn't mean, you know, three strikes and you're out. I know many churches over the years, over the decades, and even the centuries have used passages like this to kind of validate their process of what in the church world is called excommunication. It's basically the churchy word for kicking people out of your faith community. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily what Jesus intends to mean when he says to treat them as a pagan. Because it doesn't just say treat them as a pagan. He says treat them as a pagan and a tax collector. Which is a very interesting term when you consider who was recording this teaching of Jesus. Because I don't know if you know the history of this, but the person in Matthew, this friend and follower of Jesus, wasn't always a friend and follower of Jesus. There was a day where Matthew himself was a pagan, and was a tax collector. He actually records earlier in Matthew chapter 9 how Jesus related to him in that state. In verse 9, it says that Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. See, Matthew recalls a time when he was in that pagan state. He was in that state of unbelief, not professing faith in God or in, in Jesus. And he was living out the, the life of kind of a, a would-be gangster in Jesus' day. That's what a tax collector essentially was. They were kind of a, a mafia-style extortionist. And, uh, and Jesus comes by and notice Jesus didn't shun him. Jesus didn't ostracize him. Jesus didn't marginalize him. And he didn't judge him and harshly critique his lifestyle. Jesus, on the other hand, invited him in. And Jesus desired for him to become part of his spiritual family. Jesus behaved in a way and ultimately achieved the objective of winning Matthew over. And I think when Jesus has treated him as a as a pagan and as a tax collector, his spirit is not to ostracize them. It's not to excommunicate them. It's to lament the fact that they're living in a way that represents living outside of the family of God where faith has no traction in your life. And instead you're to relate to them in a winsome kind of inviting way with the intent of winning them back. In fact, winning them over is the entire umbrella spirit of this whole sequence of conflict resolution that Jesus has provided. Look back, if you can recall, at where this begins in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18, because I glossed over this. It says there, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. He says, if they listen to you, you have what? You have won them over. 
You have won them over. That's the whole point of going and confronting them. The whole point of confronting them isn't to make them feel crappy. The whole point of confronting them isn't to prove that you're right and they're wrong. The whole point of confronting them isn't to repay you know, their hurt for additional hurt. The whole point in confronting them is, according to Jesus, to win them over to a different kind of behavior and attitude than the one that caused you hurt. But if they don't listen, you enact other steps, but presumably still with the heart to win them over because even if none of those steps work and you're resigned to relate to them as if they didn't profess Christ, your posture is to still treat them the way Jesus would treat a pagan and a tax collector in hoping and praying and inviting them in that one day they might come back and you could win them over. Jesus provides us not just a sequence of conflict resolution. He provides us a spirit behind it. A spirit that progressively with increasing intensity and increasing sequence desires the very same thing. To win a person over to different behavior. I want us to call a time out for a moment and just reflect on uh, these four steps and the spirit behind them, because I think for most of us, we can appreciate that this is a radical, radical idea that Jesus has taught here, recorded by Matthew in chapter 18. This is radical behavior. It's radical, first of all, to think that when you're the person who has been hurt by someone, that it's actually your responsibility to clean things up. Think about that. I I don't default that way. When someone hurts me, I expect them because they were the one who caused the hurt. They ought to bear the responsibility to clean things up. And I'm just going to wait here angrily until they do. But that's not Jesus' heart at all. Jesus' intent is for those who are hurt to make those who have caused the hurt aware and to keep kind of moving along, which is the second idea that I think is radical, that, that, that the hurt person doesn't just bear the responsibility to initiate, but to propagate and perpetuate and to continue on in the conflict resolution sequence, even when it's not effective. Think about that. I I know when I'm hurt, I, I may get to the place where I can initiate a conversation and make the person aware of the hurt that they've caused me, giving them the benefit of the doubt, perhaps, that they're not aware of that. But if that doesn't work, I want to say, forget them. I don't want to carry that on. I want to write them off and move on to probably even other relationships. That's not the way I want to behave. And yet Jesus intends for people who've been hurt to not just confront, but to continue to work that process all the way to the end. And then number three, I think it's radical because of the spirit of it. I know that when I'm hurt, my instinct is to repay hurt for hurt. I want someone to feel as hurt and as upset as I do. I don't want to win them over. It's not in their, it's not their best interests that I have in mind when I want to confront them, if I even do. And yet that's the spirit that Jesus intends his followers to live out as we take responsibility for the hurt that other people have caused to us, as we continue to take responsibility for the biblical sequence of conflict resolution to carry it out to its fruition and to do it in the spirit of Christ in a winsome, inviting, loving, considerate way, praying and hoping that you can win the person back to different behavior. I don't know about you, but I think that that is unbelievably Radical and just an incredible thought if we were to live out fully and completely. Kind of makes us process why Jesus would include this though. And I think if you stop and reflect on that for a moment, it, it, 
it shouldn't surprise us. Remember that this whole section of text kind of proceeds the, the verses in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus said on this rock, meaning one of his disciples named Peter, I'm going to build my church. And we read that the gates of hell will not overpower it. Jesus had this vision for his church, for his people of faith growing and, and expanding and affecting the society all around them and all around the world. And, and as that momentum builds, he says the gates of hell will not overpower it, meaning the spiritual enemy of God who wants to antagonize and wants to sabotage things will not be able to prevail or to thwart the purposes of God in the world. But when you think about it, when conflict emerges, and it inevitably does in broken and fallen and sin-soiled people, even those who profess to follow Jesus Christ, maybe even especially those who profess to follow Jesus Christ because of the depth and intensity and passion of our followership and the importance and stakes of the mission and responsibility of impact and stewardship that God gives us as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we in many ways set ourselves up for an even more ripe opportunity for conflict. And Jesus appreciates not only are we ripe for conflict, but when we are, we're ripe for spiritual antagonism. That there's probably no more ripe place for the enemy to thwart the purposes of God than to start whispering in people who have been hurt by other people and to breathe lies into their minds and, and, and whisper false truths into their, into their hearts and to kind of separate them and divide them and, and more than anything, to stay that way. If you think about it, the, the, the number one reason why Jesus includes this section of text or why Matthew includes this section of text in these five deadly sins of church is because the number one thing that can allow the enemy to, to you know, kind of prevail in a way unlike Jesus' vision for his church where the gates of hell will not overpower it is not when we cause conflict, but it's when we tolerate it. And we allow it to fester and we allow it to sit there and compound and over time build and grow like mold and decay. And, and whether we're averse to resolving it or we're uncomfortable with difficult conversations or we just want to write a person off or whatever. In any of those ways, we're allowing the enemy of God to win. Instead of following Jesus' sequence in the spirit that Jesus provides in hopes that we would let him win. And continue to build his church with momentum in a way that the enemy can't survive. The problem isn't the existence of conflict in the church among a spiritual family. The problem is when we allow it to fester in an unresolved way. And so one of the most deadly sins that you and I could commit in the church is not the cause of conflict. It's the allowing it to remain unresolved. And this is so important to Jesus that he actually wraps things up this way in verse 19. He says, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. What he's saying is that this stuff is so important to kind of rally around that if you can agree in the spirit and value of conflict resolution and engage in these types of conversations from a shared purpose, you know, that purpose will be reflected spiritually and for all eternity. If you can gain that agreement, God will validate it and support it from heaven. And he says, particularly in these situations, not that God isn't everywhere all the time and in us and living inside of us if we, if we purpose to follow Jesus. But he says, especially in these times of conflict, I will be in your midst because of how spiritually significant these moments are. You've got to appreciate as difficult as conflict can be to resolve. It's also a tremendous opportunity to see God at work. 
You know, not to see the enemy prevail, but to see God come through and deliver the unity and restoration as we follow his biblical conflict sequence in the spirit of the Jesus that we follow. So for us this morning, I, I, I feel like there are three simple questions that apply to us today. We can reflect on it a little bit right here, right now, and hopefully this becomes some of the homework that we take away and talk with friends and family and life groups and, you know, even in our personal quiet times with God. I, I think question number one is, is there unresolved conflict in our lives? You know, are, are there people who we know have hurt us where, you know, things still are kind of out there, kind of festering, kind of unsettled. Maybe it's little stuff, you know, maybe it would be quick to, to resolve. Maybe it's just someone rubbed you the wrong way or excluded you one time or, you know, a, a offended you in, in, in a certain way or said something that, you know, really hurt you and they may not even realize it, but it might be kind of a tiny degree thing or it might be a huge thing. Someone may have totally offended you. Um, someone may have lied to you. You know, maybe they betrayed you. Maybe they cheated on you. Maybe they even abused you. But I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have some people, some situations in our mind where we're like, you know what, that, that still hurts. That hurt still lingers. It's, it's still here. I, I, I can acknowledge that. It, it, is there unresolved hurt in, in your life, in your world? Question two is, what, what stage of the conflict sequence uh, is it at? Have you even bothered to go there and have a conversation with the person who's hurt you? Or if you have, have you moved to step two and brought another person or a few people uh, into it to kind of witness it and to give you guys some, some guidance in how to navigate it? If you're stuck there, have you activated and leveraged the support system and the authority structure and the accountability that our church can provide? And if you haven't, have you gone to stage four where you've conceded and resigned yourself that as far as it depends on you, as the scriptures teach, you're living at peace with everyone, but you've got to unfortunately treat them as a, as a pagan and as a tax collector and just pray and hope and invite them back into a, a life lived under the leadership and accountability of Jesus. You know, what, what stage is the conflict sequence at? Have you, have you even enacted it? And then question three, which is probably the most difficult of all, if you haven't enacted this biblical conflict sequence at all, why not? Why not? Because I'm sure there's some of us here today who've never known that it existed, never studied or, or read Matthew 18 before, and we're thinking, wow, this is really practical. This is really helpful. I'm going to go and live this out, and seven dates from now, I'm going to be a different person. My relationships are going to be in different shape. You know, I'm going to trust in God's provision and his, his special engagement. And this is going to be unbelievable. Praise God. But I imagine there's some of us who know what this passage teaches. We've read it before. We've heard it taught in an environment like this or a Bible study or whatever. And, and for whatever reason, we haven't bothered to do it or haven't bothered to, to live it out to its fruition. Maybe because we're averse to conflict. Maybe because we don't feel like it. Maybe because we're too hurt to to even want to behave that way. Maybe because we've never believed there's any, any power in it. Let's just appreciate though that so many times, so many of us wish for nothing more than the Bible to be like a blueprint, for it to be a roadmap, for it to be a GPS and just simply and clearly provide us some guidance in how we make decisions and choices to live. And today God's given us that. Doesn't take a whole lot of interpretive work, probably why Mike wasn't preaching this morning. He gave this one to me instead. 
right? Very simple, not easy, not easy, but very simple and straightforward. Four simple steps that God intends for us to live out. And if we fail to live this out or refuse to live this out, I think it begs a deeper question on where our followership of Jesus is at ourselves. Because we can lament and we can be disappointed and angry and still in conflict with other people. But if we haven't taken the responsibility to actually live out and follow what Jesus intends for us to follow, it certainly begs the question of what kind of followers of Jesus we're actually seeking to be. We've said many times before, gang, that followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And Jesus understands as followers, you know, even as followers, as fallen and broken and sin-soiled people, we engage in conflict from time to time. It's not the conflict that Jesus says is the problem. It's the refusal and failure to address it and resolve it according to the roadmap he's given. So let's live as followers like never before and actually follow Jesus in this way so he can build the restoration and unity and oneness among us as a family to make us the kind of church that the gates of hell can truly not overpower. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, you know our hearts and you know when we think about conflict in relationships, uh, the kinds of people, the kinds of situations that come to mind for each of us. And I pray even right now that you would pour out hope, that you would pour out comfort, and that you would pour out encouragement to each of us that you want to set us free from these, these hurts. You want to restore these relationships. Um, you want to work in really surprising, really noticeable, really incredible ways. And I just pray, God, today that we would give you the opportunity to do that. That we would have the courage, that we would have the faith, and we would have the obedience to take the initiative that you intend and to not just stop at stage one, but to carry on to stage two and three and four all the way to fruition. And the whole time, God, I pray that you would fill us with a spirit that loves people even when they've hurt us enough to want to win them back. The Bible says that while we were still enemies, you sent your son to live and die and rise again for us. And I just thank you for the model that you've shown in loving us even when we've broken your heart enough to still want to win us back. And I pray that as followers of you, we would raise up the stakes and intensity of how we follow you and that we would do that more faithfully this week in the strength that you provide. Thanks that you're with us and you want to do that for us. We look forward to watching you work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.